in the nearly 20 years that I have been your pastor, I have preached nearly 30 sermons on the 23rd Psalm. No two duplicates of the other, though many natural themes run throughout that magnificent passage of Scripture. I do not suppose that these 119 words written by David the psalmist could be exhausted in a lifetime. Yea, in a dozen lifetimes. It is fathomless. It is truly eternal. And I'm bringing a message this morning on the 23rd Psalm, a different perspective than we have looked at it before in these 30 or so times that we have shared it together. And so I would like for all of us to read the scripture this morning. You do not need to turn to your Bible, I don't imagine. If you do, turn to the 23rd Psalm. And I would like us to say it together. Let's do that just now. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That just does you good to say it, doesn't it? One of the things about this psalm that makes it so beloved and so helpful is its positiveness. It is positive. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is. It would be perfectly permissible to pray, O Lord, be my shepherd. But the psalmist with the positiveness that genuine faith inevitably produces declares the Lord is my shepherd. Present tense, present reality, present experience. Therefore, it is on the basis of this psalm and this same truth echoed throughout the scriptures epitomized in Jesus Christ on the basis of this psalm, the totality of the emphasis of Scripture, and the message of the life of Jesus Christ himself, 
that I say to you what I deeply believe. This, today, right now, for you and for me, is the greatest time in the history of the world to be alive. Now you might as well think that because you don't have any choice in the matter. And you might as well make the best of a situation that may from some perspectives appear bad. I do not say this in any form of uh, pious Pollyanna. I believe this is the most exciting era, the most challenging moment of time to be alive in the entire history of the Christian message. I cannot quote it exactly, and I tried to find it the last week, and I could not locate it, but Macaulay, the English writer, wrote something to the effect that the times that people write about and are excited about in literature are generally the times that men and women would not choose to live in had they had the choice. Time gives them glamour. Time gives them excitement. We glamorize the days of the American Revolution. Had we been living during the days of the American Revolution, we might not have been as excited about it as we are today in perspective, in retrospect. Now, the greatest revival in the history of Christendom, next to Pentecost, the greatest revival in the history of the Christian faith next to Pentecost took place in the latter part of the 14th century and the early part of the 15th century. And I want in a very few brief moments to show you the amazing parallel between our day in the last half of the 20th century, approaching the first of the 21st century, I want us to see the startling similarity between where we are right now and where the world was in the late 1300s, the latter part of the 14th century, and the beginning of the 15th century. Politically, it was a time of terrible turmoil. England under Richard III had gone to war against France. A long war. Both nations under stress. Both nations in turmoil. At that time, the seat of the papacy, the center of the Church of Rome, today we call the Church of Rome, was in Avignon, France. The Pope was not in Rome. The Pope was in France. In 1378, Gregory XI, then the Pope, in Avignon, France, died. Now, because the papacy was located in France, the English Catholics refused to give any money 
to their church because they felt like the money going to the church was going to help France in the war that was going on between England and France. In fact, Parliament voted against allowing any money from England to be sent to the papacy then seated in Avignon because it was like aiding and abetting the enemy. And so you began to have a religious conflict along with a political conflict. Notice the similarities to the day in which you and I live. Now, in 1378, Gregory XI, then the Pope, died. Most of the cardinals at that time were Frenchmen. And they happened to be in Rome at that time, and under the pressure from the Roman populace, they elected a Roman Pope, Urban VI. Well, then those French popes went back to Avignon, and when they got back there, the French were upset with them. And so they elected another pope. They elected Clement VI. So you had two popes. You had Clement VI in Avignon, you had Urban VI in Rome, and both of them saying that the other was a false pope, both of them contending for the other for the leadership of the Church of Rome. So you had political turmoil. You had religious turmoil. In addition to that, you had economic turmoil. We had in the late 1400s in the world a breakdown in medieval feudalism. The guilds began to disintegrate. The peasants began to revolt. You had then the beginning of business, as we understand it today. The merchants became a third force in the world. Alongside the state and the church, suddenly you had commerce. You had business. You had merchants. So you had economic turmoil. You had economic change. You had peasants revolting against the status quo. You had a breakdown of the old system that had seemed so secure and so stable with one church and one state, and they joined together. Suddenly, it all begins to come apart. The state begins to come apart. The church begins to come apart. Economic stability begins to come apart. Then you had the cultural explosion called Renaissance, called Reformation. Renaissance means the beginning of new essence. It means new life. Reformation means reformation. So what was happening was a new life looking for new shapes and taking new forms. And you had it take place culturally. For one thing, philosophically, there was the throwing off of the old uh, philosophical system of scholasticism, which was really Aristotelian ethics, the, the, the philosophy of Aristotle baptized by Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologia, which he wrote. The old scholasticism of the medieval days began to disintegrate. Philosophy began to undergo some tremendous changes because they began to import Greek thinking. And the mind began to open up. At about that time, Gutenberg invented the movable press. So suddenly added to this cultural revolution of an inquiring mind 
was the availability of books, which had not been available before to the populace in any numbers whatsoever. So added to the philosophical revolution, you had a communications revolution. You had books that people had never had. You and I take much for granted. Much like the revolution that's taking place in our day is the result of the advent of television, which doesn't seem so revolutionary to those of you who are young people today. You've had it all of your life. But a lot of us grew up on books. And the only place we could get ideas were from books. And then along came radio in the 20s. So, you see, a lot of us are right on this bridge between the past and the present, much like the people in the late 14th century were on a bridge between the past of the medieval days and the beginning of the Renaissance and the Reformation. So you had a cultural revival. You also had an explosion of the world so far as man's comprehension was concerned. There was a drawing of the day that showed a ship sailing up the Mediterranean Sea, and on, on the ship, it said, as it was shown turning around at Gibraltar, at Spain, turning around and coming back into the Mediterranean, on the ship was written non plus ultra, which meant go no farther. That was the world, comfortable, secure, limited, definable, controllable. And then someone, because of the breaking open of their minds and the inquiring of their spirit, said, no, what we need to have upon that ship is plus ultra, more beyond, move out, sail on. And so Columbus did. Do you realize that Martin Luther was nine years old when Columbus discovered America? Martin Luther was 14 years old when Vasco da Gama sailed around the Cape of Good Hope and got to Eastern Africa and to, and to India and opened up the trade routes to the world. When Martin Luther stood at Worms, Germany, to make his colossal speech, here I stand, and exploded the Reformation, when Martin Luther was standing on trial at the church in Worms, Magellan was completing his first circumnavigation of the globe, and Ponce de Leon was in Florida. A culturally exploding world. The world was exploding and changing politically, economically, religiously, culturally, and at the same time, as if that were not enough, the Black Plague began to spread over Europe. Personal life was threatened. Personal security was threatened. So you had political revolution or change, economic, religious, cultural, personal. Well, what happened? when the ground begins to shake beneath our feet. What happens when the old system seems to be threatened and change seems to be in the air? What happens to God's people? What happens? Well, we're right where they were. We're right where they were. That's exactly as you well know, because you are aware people. You know what's taking place in our world. You see the political upheaval all over our world. 
change and instability all over our world. Cultural values changing all over our world. The fear of our own personal well-being. The concern of everybody all over the world. The world exploding. Columbia just flew through here the other day on its way to Florida, on its way to outer space. Plus ultra, it should be called. More beyond, more beyond, more beyond. Well, what happens? Does God understand television? Does God know anything about radar? Does God, is, can God call? Does God know what's going on? Can He do anything about what's going on? I tell you, my friend, there is no one in all the universe more contemporary than our living God. He became flesh. That's how contemporary He is. He is so concerned about the well-being of life. He is so concerned about what's happening to men and to His world that He took upon Him the form of a servant. He encapsulated in human flesh, incarnate. That's how much He cares. Listen, whenever God begins to move, you know what? He gets a man. And the other man is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He becomes pattern for the power of God in the world, not always with a man. When God wants to do something, He begins with a man. doesn't permit it. He may work through committees. He may work with groups of people, but He begins with a person. And the ultimate person begins with is Jesus Christ, who was with God from the found world, and all things were made by Him. The agent of action, the very God Himself, is a God of temporary action. God wants to do something, and what does He do? He gets Moses, people out of slavery. God wants to do something in the world. What does He do? Joshua to get them into the promised land. When God does something with a decadent religion, what does He do? He raises up an Isaac. He raises up an Ace. He raises up a Jonah. God won't move. He picked them people. And through those people, those other people are changed. The entire course of His transfer. Look at what happened in the latter part of the 14th and the early part of the 15th century. When all of this turmoil was going on, the church began to experience the greatest revival it's ever known since Pentecost. And in some ways greater than Pentecost because it was pan-culture. It was through all cultures and permeated the whole world. What did he do? Who did he pick up? Who did he touch? Well, listen to their names. A veritable galaxy in the hall of fame of God's servants. Wycliffe in England. All of these men, nearly contemporaries, many of them knew each other, all lived within 50 years of each other. Wycliffe in England. Huss in Prague. Luther in Germany. Zwingli in Zurich. Calvin in Geneva. John Knox in Scotland. You see what this says, my friend, and something you and I as God's people need to know. Do you know what history is? History is His story. His story. Not man's story. Not the humanist story, the secularist story. It's God's story. God is a part of history. He is working in the world today. He is alive and well and work and at work right here.
He's not some distant, absentee landlord sitting on a thunderhead somewhere, wringing his hands over the condition of the world. He's right here. The Lord is with you. The Lord is. The Lord is. That's positive. And that's true. Not only is he positive, and not only is this psalm positive, but it is also a promise. It is a promise. Listen to it. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He makes, he leads, he restores. He makes. You say, do you believe that God sometimes overrides us? Well, let me answer that by saying I believe in the sovereignty of Almighty God. I believe the Lord sometimes when I fevered with activity, preoccupied with the wrong things, disordered priorities, I believe the Lord sometimes sends me to bed to get some sleep as surely as my mother sent me to bed when I was a little child, when I got impatient or tired or feverish because of overactivity. There are times, my friend, when God will make us do the things that down deep inside in our better moments and our finer moments really want Him to do, but because of preoccupation with other things or the frenetic activities of the flesh, we lose sight of those basic priorities. He makes me to lie down. He's made me lie down. In fact, a lot of times, many of us don't look up until we lay down. The Bible says, God opens and no man shall shut. God shuts and no man shall open. I believe God is sovereign in the world. We talk about building the church. Oh no, we need to keep our ideas straight, even if our language sometimes betrays us. This committee for super growth, this church, you, I, we are not going to build the church. The Bible says, Jesus said of himself, I will build my church. We'll not build it. We'll build buildings in which the church will be. But the church is not a building, never has been, never will be. We'll build structures, we'll organize programs. But the church, the living, vivifying, moving, transforming power of Almighty God is something that He and He alone can do. No building can substitute for it. No preacher can substitute for it. No program can substitute for it. No financial security can substitute for it. In fact, you can have all of those and never have the church. He builds His church. We build buildings to keep the water off so the church can get together to have fellowship and to study and to meet and to use as a headquarters for service. But he builds the church just as surely as Elijah built the altar 
and poured water all around it and put the sacrifice upon it. And then what did Elijah do? He did exactly what we're doing. We may build buildings. We may organize. But we will do exactly what Elijah did. We'll get on our face before God and say, Oh God, if you don't answer, what we've done is sounding brass and clanging cymbal. Elijah built the altar, dug the trench, put the water in it, put the sacrifice upon it, and God answered with fire. Power belongeth unto God. We'll build buildings, we'll organize, we will expand, but my friend, if the fire of God does not fall, what we do here is a waste of time and money. But if the fire of God does fall, and lives are changed, and hearts are transformed, and God is honored, it's worth a thousand times more than the few million dollars we might spend, right? He builds. He works. He moves. He makes. And He leads. And it's interesting that it says He restores. You know what that literally says in the Hebrew? It says, He brings me back from wandering. He brings me back from wandering. You see, if I'd go on following the Lord when He's leading me, if I wouldn't just get off here on a tangent on my own, if I wouldn't think I know better and I know how to do it without the Lord's help, if I'd let Him lead me, then He wouldn't have to spend so much time restoring me. That says, He brings me back from wandering. He restoreth my soul. And I think we who go to church frequently need to be reminded of the fact that we're here not because we have found the Lord, but because He's found us. The glory goes to God. The credit goes to God for everything that's happened in our lives because in us there's no good thing and any good thing that's there is not there intrinsically because of us. It is there because of the goodness and the grace of God. He restores us. He brings us back from wandering. So first, positive. Second, promise. Third, personal. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now get this. This ought to put some lights on in your life. For Thou art with me. Why am I not to be afraid? Because thou art with me. I've pointed it out often. Let me say it again for any who maybe have overlooked it. Have you noticed the change here in the 23rd Psalm? Up until that moment, the sheep has been talking about the shepherd he has been saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He does this, He does this, He does this, and He does that. But when you get to the valley of the shadow of death, notice the change of language. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for He is with me. Oh, no. For you are with me. In the valley of the shadow, it's face to face. 
person to person, heart to heart. You are with me. That's why I'm not going to be afraid. As David says in the 139th Psalm, if I ascend into heaven, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in death, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand hold me and your right hand shall lead me. Personal. He's with us. That's why we'll not be afraid. person. And he protects us. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That really means protect because that shepherd would use that rod. It was kind of like a billy club. And a good shepherd could kill a dog at 50 paces with that rod. Had great dexterity with it. He used that rod to protect his sheep. And he used the staff to guide his sheep. Thy rod and thy staff, they protect me. He comforts me. Listen to this. He accompanies me. He protects me. He prepares the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And He provides for me. My cup runneth over. I mean, you can't get much more personal help than that, can you? The Almighty God Himself who made the heavens and the earth and who spoke worlds into existence and who created our bodies out of the dust of the earth and who breathed into us the breath of life, who is the judge of the living and the dead, who will someday come as the consummation of all history. He's my constant companion. Brother, that's great news. He's with us personally to comfort us and to encourage us and to protect us and to provide for us and to prepare the tabletop of life for us. And then finally and in conclusion, His is perpetual help. Not just spasmodic, though you and I are in so much of what we do. Our worship may be, our devotion may be. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is so constant and so unchanging. You and I may change, but God does not. And do not project onto God the changeableness of your own attitude. Not at all. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me. Why do I need goodness and mercy following me? Because the Lord's leading me. You see, unlike any other shepherd in the world, the Holy Land shepherd leads his sheep. So the Lord's out in front of us and goodness and mercy are following us. You know who goodness and mercy are? They're the Lord's two sheepdogs. Goodness and mercy are God's sheepdogs. They're back there to watch us and to bark at us sometime to get us back in the grazing line to keep us from wandering off where we have to be restored or rescued. So the sheepdogs of God, goodness and mercy, follow me all the days of my life and I'm going somewhere and I'm going to dwell there forever. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That, my friend, is perpetual care. Not out here at some cemetery where the body's going to decay. There's nothing perpetual about that except that they mow the lawn for a few years. The only perpetual care is in God Almighty. And we will not be dead in His presence. 
we will be alive forevermore. I will dwell in the house of the Lord how long? Forever. Well, what are three score years and ten compared with forever? What's the little flicker of time you and I live upon this earth compared to forever? Nothing. Positive. Promise. Personal. Perpetual. Many of you know how much I love and appreciate John Huss. John Huss, the unsung hero of the Reformation. Martin Luther said we were all Hussites but didn't know it. One of the sayings of the 15th century was, Huss laid the egg, Luther hatched it. I've been in his church where he preached in Bethlehem Chapel in Prague. And I've read just about everything I can get my hands on about him. In 1415, because of his evangelical fervor, because he believed the Bible and believed there was no way of salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ, basically evangelical, basically Baptist in doctrine, professor at Charles University, the oldest university on the continent. 1415, he was called to a council at Constance, which is today in Switzerland, and in 1415, at 42 years of age, John Huss was burned at the stake. 42. You say, oh, how much he could have done had he only lived. Who said he's dead? Simply because he doesn't live in Prague? Does that mean he doesn't live? Simply because you cannot write a letter to him in Prague, does that mean he doesn't exist? Because I live, said Jesus, you shall live also, though your life cut short by circumstances, by violence, by customs or culture, 42 years of age, burned at the stake. And I want you to hear four statements he wrote the night before he died. It is better to die well than to live without purpose. He who fears death loses the joy of life. Above all else, truth conquers And the last statement, no adversary, no adversary can hurt anyone who refuses to allow iniquity to control his life. That's great stuff. We are the heirs of John Huss. Better than that, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He that believeth in me, though he dies at 42, burned at the stake in Constance. Though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me, get this, shall never die. I tell you, my friend, this is the greatest time in the history of the world to be alive. Let's get with it. Let's get with God and with God's people. Let's get with God's work in the world. Let's get with God's purposes in life. And I believe we are on the verge of, maybe more in the midst of, than we're capable of seeing right now. I believe we're on the verge of, in the vestibule of, if you will, a great spiritual awakening that will eclipse into nothingness the awakening of the 14th century. For he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world in the 14th century or the 20th century tell you, I've listened to myself preach this morning, and I've preached to myself this morning, and I'm ready to face life this week with some new fervor and commitment and dedication because of the promise of God and the eternal message of the 23rd Psalm. May we stand together and bow our heads. And now, dear Lord, in this moment of invitation, accomplish in my life and the life of every one of us here, individually, that which you need to accomplish. Stir some part of our spirit that's not been stirred in a long while. Renew some old promises. Remind us of some old vows. Reform us into a new reformation. Renaissance us into a new life as the recipients of the life eternal which comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless this moment of invitation, dear Lord, to the end that people will make decisions that will help them strengthen your work in the world and honor your name forever because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We sing. I stand here at the base of this aisle. If you come to make decisions this morning, trust Christ to move your membership. Come under watch care by statement. Come in rededication. Whatever God's Spirit impresses you to do, Now's the time to do it. Do it right now. We sing together, just as I am. You come. Just as I am.